Do they correctly recognize who Jesus is? And do they obey him? This is the podcast of Tressler Mennonite Church. You can come here each week to listen to a replay of our most recent Sunday morning sermon. Or, I guess, you can go elsewhere and listen to something inspiring, enjoyable, and insightful. This sermon was from February 11, 2024, and the text was 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. So this morning we are continuing in our sermon series in 1 John, and as Linda read, we are in the second half of chapter 2. You might have noticed, depending which translation you were reading, as you were following along with her, that verses 12 and 14 are, at least in some translations, laid out a little bit like a, a song or some poetry. It seems to be a blessing that John is giving to his readers. They affirm their strength, their maturity, their growth. And so I'm actually going to look at them and read them at the end of my time up here. I want to talk about John's message, his point, and then close with sort of that blessing upon you that John wrote in verses 12 to 14. So we'll do the second half of John, but I want to give some context first. And if you jump all the way back to chapter 1, John writes that people sin. We know that. It's not a very deep statement, so to speak. But But it's worth noting John does not write this because he's trying to condemn people or to rebuke them. Actually, he's trying to offer them hope. He says, essentially, yes, we all sin, verse 9 then, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And then he moves on into what we call chapter 2. He writes that Jesus is our advocate before the Father, and Jesus is also the one who makes it possible for us to be cleansed to be purified, to be forgiven. So then, then sort of, how do, we, how do we know whether we have been forgiven, cleansed, purified? How do we know that somebody else has been? How do we know that somebody truly knows God? Well, John says to look for obedience. You can go to verse 4 in chapter 2. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. So John just wrote a little bit ago that we all sin. So what does he mean when he sort of presents obedience as the test or the, or the mark of a relationship with God? And I think I said last week that I think repentance is the key here. Um, when I fail, when I sin, my repentance shows that I still believe that God's way is the right way, even if my actions didn't align with that. So I think obedience is the test or the mark of a true Christian, but that has to be coupled with repentance in times of failure because we all will fail. We all sin. And John adds a little bit of detail as he's trying to sort of teach us this concept. Obedience means living as Jesus did. That's verse 6, and that means loving as Jesus loved. That's verses 9 and 10. Now, I know that's last week's sermon, but John didn't really divide his letter up into precise weekly um, segments, so I wanted to give the background of what was going on in his mind before we move into the next piece that he wrote about. So obedience is the test, and obedience means living and loving like 
Jesus. And then in verses 15 to 17, then, he goes on and he talks about this love. And he says, but do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and the pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So you can see that same theme here at the end of this section, doing God's will, those, those things that please God. That, that is what marks us as his, and that is what gives us eternal life. The things of this world, all those things that we might see or want, whether it's possessions or houses or money or cars, those things that sort of grab and hold us, or actually maybe it's achievements, more like careers or fame, or but these things are just temporary, John says. So make sure that you love as Jesus loved. That means loving God, love your neighbor, and not the things of this world, the pleasures and the things like that. So then he goes on and he gives a warning. He says, be careful. You know that that Antichrist you've heard about, well, uh, actually there are lots of Antichrists already around. And some of them, many of them, began within the church, although they have moved away from the church since then. Watch out for them. So I'm sort of summarizing verses 18 and 19 here. But I, I, I wasn't sure how to start this section because depending what church background or experiences you have, when you encounter that word Antichrist, you might immediately think of end times and beasts and revelations. And if that's what you think, I'm afraid that you're going to get a little bit distracted here with this part of the passage because I think John is using the word a little differently than we sometimes use it in the church. He is using it to mean somebody who is the opponent of or somebody who is in opposition to the Christ. And that, that occurs to me that I should probably remind you what the Christ is. Some of you know what this term, it just means the anointed one. Christ and Messiah are the same words, one in Greek and one in Hebrew, but they have the same meaning. And, and as near as I can tell, then either of them were actually translated, they were just transliterated, and that, whether that's good or bad, you can talk to the translators for their reasons. But the problem, so to speak, is that we use these words so frequently within the church, especially the word Christ. We use it so often that we sometimes, well, we sometimes seem to think it's just Jesus' last name, and that's, of course, not true at all. It is his title. He is the Christ, which means he is God's anointed one. So in Israel, priests and kings were anointed, so the word had sort of a connotation of royalty and of um, religious leadership. But my understanding is, especially by the time of Jesus and common usage, this word had, had sort of begun to refer to a specific one, David's true heir, the one that God had promised who would come and bring judgment to the world and deliverance to the people of Israel. And so again, notice there's this theme of royalty and priesthood merged into this with an emphasis that this was somebody that God had chosen and God had promised. So the words Jesus Christ are his name and his position, the one that God had promised long ago who would bring judgment and salvation. So when John uses the word here in chapter 2, he means somebody who is in opposition to the Christ, opposition to the anointed one. So perhaps you could read the section in something like this. Many people opposed to Jesus have already come. They started in our group and they have left the true 
church. And then John says in verse 20, But you are not like that, for the Holy One has given you his Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So there are people out there who are Jesus' opponents, but John's not writing to them. He is saying to his readers, you know the truth of who Jesus is, and you remain with God. He goes on, verses 22 and 23, and who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And then in verse 26, John again reminds his readers that he is not writing to rebuke them, but to warn them. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you've received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what's true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And so then John concludes this section with an encouragement for the people to be faithful until Jesus returns. And his final words in this chapter are sort of a repeat of the same theme. We also know that all who do what is right are God's children. So once again, we get that sort of obedience as the mark of the relationship. Or actually, Jesus said something a little bit like this in Matthew 12, 33, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, the fruit will be good, and if a tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. And so that's sort of a a fast overview of this this chapter, the section of the chapter, kind of on a a big picture level. I I was, there are probably dozens of sermons that could get preached out of this without repeating yourself too much. And there's a lot of teaching sections in here that we could talk about, some things that I thought were kind of interesting, but I don't know. I don't know if there's time for everything. I'm sure there's not, actually. So I've been choosing in this chapter to focus on the idea of false teachers. And that's, that's not the only thing that you could talk about here, but that has been my focus. And you noticed last week I talked about false teachers, and that's the terminology I use largely this week. But John's terminology is antichrist. But I was a little bit afraid if I talked about that and used that word too much, you might... You might focus on that and miss the point. It seems that this is somebody who is in opposition to God's anointed one. Maybe you could also say it's somebody who is claiming that someone or something is a substitute for God's anointed one. And of course, John makes it abundantly clear that he believes the anointed one is Jesus. So, The way John's using the term, somebody who is teaching something contrary to Jesus' teaching is an antichrist because they are working in opposition to Jesus, the true anointed one. Or somebody who tries to get you to put your trust in something other than Jesus, money, position, politics, a nation, a leader, something like that, whatever it might be, somebody who tries to get you to put your trust in something other than the true anointed one is an antichrist. They're trying to get you to trust other than what God has chosen to be the source of salvation and deliverance. So I'm using mostly false teacher. It seems to me to capture the same idea, somebody who is leading you away from Jesus, away from his path, his way of life, his truth. And those people are around in John's time. They're around today. I think they'll always be around until Christ returns. 
So, but, but remember again, John is not writing to rebuke his leaders or to criticize them. He wants them to be discerning and to be aware of it, but he trusts them. They are filled with the Spirit. They are aware of the truth. So my last sermon focused on the idea that there are voices out there that speak to us, and they do impact us and change us. So how do we discern whether these voices are coming from a false teacher? This week, John talks a lot about sort of this test of... Um, of well, so if last week was obedience, that test, this week is the test of having a right understanding of who Jesus is. So false teachers will prop, not properly know who Jesus is. They will not acknowledge him as God's anointed one. I read verses 22 and 23 in the NLT. I'll, I'll just do it in the New American Standard. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Or 23 then, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So I think if you're trying to sort of discern who might be a false teacher, listen to who they believe Jesus is. Then I guess you can watch to make sure it seems like they're living out what their words say about that. So in John's day, as near as we can tell from history, at least according to the books I have, there were several different false ideas about Jesus that were circulating within well, at least trying to penetrate the Christian community, we'll say. There were the people who acknowledged God, but they did not at all accept Jesus as God's anointed one. So this was, for example, true in the Jewish community. They very much believed in God, they read the scriptures, but they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And John claims that people like this miss God entirely. Even though they might claim to know God, he says you cannot truly know God if you reject Jesus. Kind of bold words, but that seems to be what he's saying. You can tell me if you think otherwise. In John's day, there were other groups who accepted Jesus as some kind of an amazing leader, but they also did not believe that he was actually the anointed one, the true Messiah. Apparently, they believed that he had some sort of a, of a spirit that kind of filled him and used him for a while and then left at a later time. And then it seems like there were other people who felt like Jesus was some sort of a divine figure, but not human at all. I think probably these same kind of false concepts exist within our culture. Maybe we phrase it differently, but probably the underlying lie exists in all times and in all places, manifesting itself in different ways. So I, I was trying to look around and I found some numbers um, from 2018, had a good survey. It was redone in 22 with about the same data, but, but a li little less detail. In 2018, it said 80% of Americans said that they believe in God when asked. Like, do you believe in God? 80% said yes. But if you asked a follow-up question, about one-third of those people meant just a generic higher power. And actually, if they asked these questions down through this survey, about 90% of the people actually said they believe in some kind of a higher power, and a bunch of them called that power God, but, but only a smaller portion actually believed in the God of the Bible when they phrased the question that way. But see, John would say, just like in his day, that there are people who believe in the God of the Bible who don't believe in Jesus as God's anointed one and do not know, know God. John seems to be saying that belief in God doesn't matter at all if you don't know Jesus. In fact, you cannot actually know God if you don't know Jesus. And actually, he would also, I think, say, I think this is clear here, 
that simply believing in Jesus, that historical figure who walked and taught, well, that also is not enough, we'll say, or it's not, it's not relevant. The question is, does that person believe Jesus is the Christ? And that's why I tried to talk about the meaning of the word Christ, because see, there are people who think then and now that Jesus was a great teacher, but they reject Jesus as judge and savior, so they do not accept him as the Christ. In John's language, they are antichrists, although that's a loaded word. But then there are others who I think will gladly accept Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him to be Lord. Sure, they might say, rescue me from hell. That sounds really good. I don't want to go there. Just don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me that I have to love my enemy. Don't tell me that I have to turn the other cheek because that stuff doesn't work. In John's language, those people are also antichrist because, see, Christ has this idea of royalty, of kingship mixed into it. The Christ is the one God promised who would come, who would reign, and who would rule. So if someone rejects Jesus' commands about how to live, that person does not accept Jesus as Christ, as God's anointed one, the one who will reign, who will judge, who will save. So yes, someone might say, please, Jesus, rescue me. Just don't tell me how to live. That person does not know Jesus as Christ. But again, John is clear that he is not writing, he's not writing these words to condemn his readers. And I don't think I need to, I don't want at all to present the idea that I'm saying this to condemn you. I think you're in the same place as his readers. You know the truth. John says, he says, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. So there are, there are probably lots of people around us in this world, many false teachers, and John gives us two ways that we can sort of identify them or, or help us discern who they might be. Do they correctly recognize who Jesus is, and do they obey him? Over the years, there have been Christian teachers who have tried to get people to, to say, only read the Bible, no other books or media or of any kind, or, or don't listen to the radio or watch TV or have a phone or use a computer. And they've, I th there's probably been some false reasonings, but I think often the leaders wanted to try to protect their people from false teachers. Their motives may have been good, but these kind of rules generally don't, don't work. They just result in a terrible mess of, of legalism and other problems. And yet I do think we have to be cautious about what we fill our minds with. I think that's wise, but so it seems after I was reading this passage in 1 John 2 that maybe what is, what is important is for us to at least be aware of which voices speaking into our lives are coming from Christians and which are not. So if I'm reading or listening to something, if I'm, if I'm hearing it and I know that that person is not a brother in Christ, that person is not a Christian, it's going to help me keep that word, that phrase, that information in a proper place and context in my mind. But if I'm accepting that person as a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to probably file that in my mind in a different way. So we have to, we have to know, we have to discern. Over the years, I've, I found it kind of sad sometimes to talk with somebody who is a Christian, and they're talking about some topic or issue in their community or in their neighborhood, and, and they're talking about it, and I suddenly hear the words of our culture just coming right back at me instead of the words of Jesus. And I realize this person has been formed by teachers who are not disciples of Jesus. And these things seep in. We have to, 
we have to discern what voices we're hearing. And I, I, I think you can, I don't want to imply that you have to somehow shut your mind to everything out there that is not from Jesus. That this doesn't work that way. I was recently watching some videos on welding techniques, trying to repair something. I don't know if it mattered at all whether the people who made those videos were Christians or not. But if I'm listening to somebody trying to understand how to think about God or a topic or a situation in my life or my community, there I have to be very careful because I'm being formed. And if I'm being formed by people who know Jesus, I'll be pushed in a good direction. If I'm being formed by somebody who doesn't, I'll be pushed away. So we need to be aware of whether a person passes John's tests. Do they correctly recognize who Jesus is and do they obey him? So again, I said I wanted to close by reading verses 12 to 14. John addresses his comments, if you're looking at it, towards essentially three groups of people. God's children, those who are mature, and those who are young. That's the NLT wording. Others would say children, fathers, young men, different translations. And sometimes it seems to mess people up. Why does he have children, fathers, and young people? Um, Several commentators reminded me that John uses the word children repeatedly throughout his letter here in 1 John, and usually when he uses it, he's referring to the entire group of his readers, the people that he is talking to. My children, he's talking to everybody. Verse 18, for example, you can look at that. He's using children, and he's referring to the people that he is writing to. And so I think maybe in 12 to 14, he writes to God's children, meaning everybody, and then he splits them into two groups, those who are more mature in their faith and those who are new in their faith. And you'll notice also that John repeats quite a bit. For a while, I thought, you know, this is kind of repetitious, a waste of paper, especially if you're writing it by hand. But, but then I was thinking about songs that we sing, and often they'll have a chorus that gets repeated every single time. That repetition emphasizes in our minds an important point. So I think that's probably what John was doing. So put that in your mind, take it for what it's worth, and let me read to you John's words from 12 to 14. I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children, because you know the Father. And I have written to you who are mature in the faith, because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. And I have written to you who are young in the faith, because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts, and you have won your battle with the evil one. You have been listening to the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from February 11, 2024. The passage was 1 John 2, 12-29. Take care.